right, thank you so much, and you can be seated. And again, I'm so glad that you're here with us on this Wednesday evening. How many of you brought your Bible with you? Will you hold up the Word of God all over the building tonight? I want to ask you to join me way over in the New Testament tonight in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 1. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, page 1279, if you have an old Schofield Bible. And I want to read just the, the first two verses of this chapter. And then if you will, I want to ask you to leave your Bibles open and follow me along here for just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now don't forget to be much in prayer for the Hall family. Again, that's Friday night from 6 to 8 at the funeral home. And um, we had a homecoming going on here at the church, so it was just about being possible to do everything here at the church. So the visitation will be at the funeral home. The service will be here at 11. And then don't forget the Lord's Day. Please be much in prayer for the Lord's Day, our Sunday school, 9 o'clock. We had a good start, I thought, last Sunday, a great crowd. And then people saved, and we're looking forward to baptizing people this Sunday. And we got some folks that are going to be baptized tonight here in just a little bit. We're going to do it after church, so, and I'll preach fast, and we'll be done still have you out of here in plenty of time uh, for you to get home by 11 o'clock for the news. And so I'm kidding. But uh, we're going to do that right after service here in just a moment. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you're there, would you say amen? All right, could I read verse 1 and verse number 2 and then leave your Bibles open and follow me along because really what we have here is just one sentence. It's really just one sentence. Look at verse 1. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So in reality, we have got one sentence here, but I want to share with you tonight three truths from this one sentence. All right? So leave your Bibles open and follow us along. Let's pray. Father, would you please bless your word tonight? God, I know that with all that's going on this week, and not just here at church, but in our own individual lives, Lord, that it's easy to come to church and be distracted and mind being pulled in 50 different ways. But I do pray for just a little bit that the Spirit of God would be pleased to help us and speak to us from this text tonight. And God, just uh, help us. God, please encourage our hearts as we move through these days, and bless your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As of the writing of 1 Timothy, now we're in 2 Timothy, but as of the writing of the book before 2 Timothy, most believe that Timothy, whom these two books were written to, was the pastor of the church located in the city of Ephesus. Paul, if you remember from Acts chapter 19, had gone into the city of Ephesus during his second missionary journey. And while he is there, he encounters a great deal of adversity. You see, the city of Ephesus was given over to the worship of a false goddess by the name of Diana. Diana. The people of the city of Ephesus actually made their living off the worship of this false goddess by the name of Diana. And here comes the Apostle Paul into the city of Ephesus, and he begins preaching. And in his preaching, he begins preaching against the worship of this false god. Now, as you might well imagine, that kind of a preaching, confrontational preaching, was not welcomed with open arms. But nevertheless, as Paul preached the Word of God, God's Word prevailed. 
And Paul actually wound up staying longer in the city of Ephesus than he did in any other city that he ever went to. For over two years, two and a half years, Paul preached and labored in the city of Ephesus, and as a result of that, multitudes of people were saved, and a thriving local church was started right in the middle of that satanic stronghold. God started a local New Testament church. In fact, here's what we read happened when Paul went to the city of Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 20, the Bible says, Paul preached, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So God won the victory. By the way, God's always going to win the victory. And he preached and people were saved and a church was started. I need to remind you tonight that we have a book in our New Testament called the book of Ephesians. And that book was written to the believers located in the city of Ephesus. We also, if just by way of remembrance, be reminded tonight that over in the book of Revelation, chapter number 2, we have a letter written by the Lord Jesus himself to a church located in the city of Ephesus. Boy, it was a good church. You remember those seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3? Out of all those seven churches, boy, God had some good things to say about the church of Ephesus. They were standing for truth. They were laboring for the Lord. Of course, the, the, the one blight that God brought against them, one, uh, uh, one negative thing God brought against them was they had left their first love, but it was a very, very thriving church. Well, it seems evident when Paul left the city of Ephesus after those years of laboring there that he left this young man by the name of Timothy behind as the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Now, you've got to understand, that probably was difficult to do. It really was. I mean, he is following in the footsteps of the apostle Paul. I'm telling you, that had to be hard to do laboring there in that church. I remember when I became pastor here at Woodland, people, uh, people used to remark to me constantly, they'd, they'd say something to the effect, boy, you have some big shoes to fill trying to follow a preacher like Brother Zeno Gross. And my response to that was this, I'm not going to even try to fill those shoes. In fact, what I think we ought to do is take those shoes and nail them up over here on the wall and just walk by and admire them once in a while, and I think I'll just try to fill my own shoes. But I'm telling you, you can just imagine how, how overwhelmed Timothy must have been trying to pastor after the Apostle Paul left the city of Ephesus. No wonder we've got all those encouragements back in 1 Timothy. Paul encouraging Timothy and trying to uh, give him a push and keep him encouraged and upbeat and positive. However, as we come to this second letter that we call the second book of Timothy, Timothy is no longer the pastor in the church of Ephesus. Now he is thought to be doing some evangelistic work around the city of Ephesus. Can I stop and say this? If you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll find out that Timothy was killed somewhere around the city of Ephesus. They were so mad at him for his stand for Christ and preaching the Word of God that the Fox's Book of Martyrs said they actually took clubs and beat Timothy to death right outside the city limits of Ephesus. Paul is now in 2 Timothy no longer writing to a young pastor with all the problems of a pastorate. Now he is writing to an older, much more mature preacher. And I'm entitling the message tonight I'm entitled A Manual for Maturity. A Manual for Maturity. You know, in every church, every church is somewhat like a hospital. 
when it comes to ministry. You see, every church ought to be in the, in the ministry of being spiritual obstetricians. So we practice in our church, we, we practice spiritual, and I hope I'm saying this right, obstetrics. But not only are we spiritual obstetricians, but once we become spiritual obstetricians, we also become spiritual pediatricians. Now let me explain that statement. You see, as obstetricians, the main job of a doctor who majors in obstetrics is bringing babies into the world. And our church ought to be in the constant habit of bringing children, babies, into the family of God. Why, you ought to be a spiritual obstetrician. We ought to call you Dr. David. We ought to call you Dr. Darrell. Because you ought to be, I ought to be in the habit. You ought to call me Dr. Tim. We ought to be in the habit of bringing children into the family of God. Our church ought to major in spiritual obstetrics. But we don't, we, don't, we don't just major in that, but once we become spiritual obstetricians, we also then must become spiritual pediatricians because we just don't bring babies into the family. Once we get them into the family, then we've got to start t caring for them. We've got to be sure that they're nourished and they're cared for once we bring them into the family of God. You know, I thank God for these good doctors over here at the hospital. They're in the process of constantly delivering babies, bringing babies into the world. But when they get done with their part, then we have another doctor that steps in called a pediatrician, and before babies are released from the hospital, those pediatricians got to check them out real good, be sure everything's going okay, because they are in the business of taking care of small children. And ladies and gentlemen, in a measure, that's what our church is to be. We're to be bringing people, babies, into the family of God, but once we bring them in, we're not done with them yet. We then have to nourish them, protect them, and care and guide them as they grow in their walk with God. Now, I'll tell you something. It is God's plan once we are saved, once we become God's people, it is God's plan for us to mature in our relationship and in our walk with God. When we come into the family, we come into the family as newborn babes in Christ. And there is not one thing wrong when you come into God's family. I don't care if you didn't get saved, you're 95 years old. When God looks at you, He looks at you as a newborn babe being brought into the family of God. That's fine. We expect newborn babes to make a mess, don't they? We expect newborn babies to cry all the time. We expect newborn babies to need special attention. And, uh, and boy, you've got to keep your hands on them. You've got to pamper them and, and coach them along. You know why? They're babies, for crying out loud. But I've got a real problem with people who's been saved for 10 or 15 years in the family of God, been in the family for 10 or 15 years, and they've never left the infancy stage of their Christian life. We got a real, if, I, if you walked in this church, I'm 57 years old. I know I don't look it. Probably look 97. But I'm 57 years old. It, you'd think something was wrong with me if you walked in here tonight and I got up with a Hot Wheels car and started going. <laughs> you'd say, man, preachers, he was close. We knew he was close for years, but now he's going over the edge, ain't he? I mean, you'd say, something's wrong with that guy playing with Hot Wheels at his age. Yeah, what Brother Brian got up here with a baby doll? Man, why am I jumping on you for? I love you, brother. Yeah, you can have a hot wheel too then. I mean, you say something's wrong with them guys playing with toys at their age, you know? And you'd be right. 
But can I tell you something? Something wrong with people who have been saved for years and years and years, but they're still playing with Hot Wheels in the, in the church. One of the greatest problems the church of Corinth had was spiritual immaturity. There's a verse back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, at verse number 1, Paul said this, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual. In other words, Paul said, I couldn't write to you like, you'd grown, like you were a grown-up. He said, but I had to write unto you as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Can I tell you that most of the problems in our church today are caused by people who have never matured in their walk with God? I get it. I understand the need for all the attention that people need uh, when they first get saved. You've got to keep your hands on them. You've got to keep making phone calls. You've got to keep the encouragement. I get it. But for the life of me, I can't understand why people who have been saved for years still need constant attention from the leadership of the church. It's time to grow up. It's time to mature in your walk with God. So... In 2 Timothy, we have a manual for maturity. Now, i got to tell you, it's God's plan for us to grow. It is God's plan for us to mature in our faith. You know, we know something's wrong, and I'm certainly not making light of this whatsoever, but we know there's something wrong with little children that are, and, and they still, you know, they may be 35, 40, 45, 50 years old, but, I mean, they still act like little children. We know there's something physically, mentally wrong with people like that. And by the way, God loves people like that so much. And they're protected by the grace of God. I believe that with all my heart. But we know something's wrong with them. Can I tell you something? There's something wrong with people who have been saved for years that haven't developed in their walk with God. Here's what the Bible said about that in 2 Peter 3, verse 18. But grow. It's a command. But grow in grace. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hey, we ought to be in the process of growing up. If somebody's got to constantly keep their hands on you and pamper you and keep you from throwing a tantrum all the time, you got problems. You're welcome. <laughs> I was really hoping for a lot of amens right there. I'm kidding, but I mean, it's time, it's time to grow up. So Paul begins to write to a mature preacher now by the name of Timothy, and he begins with these words. Look at verse 1. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? In our way of writing letters, we always wait, wait to the last to sign our names. But in New Testament times, they signed their name right up front. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, believe it or not, in those two verses... We've just met three people, all right? So what I want to do tonight, grab your prayer sheet, 744. Let's fill this out real quick. We learned three great truths about the book of 2 Timothy from the opening sentence of this book. The first truth that we find, the first person that we meet is this. I'm calling him the old man who is the writer. The old man who is the writer. Now look at the very first words of the book. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we know at this particular time that Paul is an aged man. The reason I say that is because there is a book back, uh, the verse back in the book of Philemon. There's only one chapter, and it's verse number 9. And Paul says this to Philemon. 
He says, Yet for love's sake I had rather beseech thee being, Paul, being such and one as Paul the aged. Now that tells us something. At the writing of the book of Philemon, Paul is somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 years old. Now Paul thought he was an old man. I'm 57. <laughs> what does that say about me? <laughs> I'm moving right along. At the age of 60, Paul thought he was an aged man. And yet we know at the writing of 2 Timothy, we're probably six or seven years later. So Paul is now probably 66 or 67 years old. And he's writing now as an old man. He is the writer of this book. Notice the name Paul. You know what the name Paul means? It means little or little one. You know, most people think and, and believe that Paul was a very little man. I'm talking about in stature. Most people think that Paul was a short man, barely a little over five foot tall. He was bow-legged. He was bald-headed, and he had very, very bad eyesight. You know, when you were to look at the Apostle Paul, you wouldn't see anything about him that would cause him to stand out to be somebody special in your eyes. In fact, Paul said of himself on one occasion that he was weak in bodily presence. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 10, he mentions the fact that as far as his bodily presence, that he was a weak individual. That means in Forsyth County language, he wasn't much to look at. But although he may have been small in the physical sense, boy, he was a giant when it come to anything spiritually. And we all know how it began for the Apostle Paul. We understand. We got our, we got our uh, book of Acts, and we understand how it all started for old Paul. We, we remember him when his name was Saul. And it started in those days when Saul was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. You see, Saul was a religious man, but he was a lost man. Saul was an intelligent man, but he was a lost man. Saul was a refined man, but he was a lost man. You can be religious, you can be intelligent, and you can be refined, but you can still be lost, friend. All lost people are not down here on Crack Avenue tonight smoking dope, drinking Budweiser, and living with somebody they're not married to. There are people who sit in 3,000 square foot homes in fine neighborhoods that are religious and intelligent and refined, but if they don't know Jesus, they're lost. Amen. And Paul was all of those things, and yet he was a lost man. Paul, or Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that? From the tribe of Benjamin. And we read back in our Old Testament that the tribe of Benjamin was known as the wolf tribe. Yeah, one of the characteristics when Jacob was talking about his son Benjamin, he described him as being a wolf, like a wolf. And the tribe of Benjamin was known as the wolf tribe. Now, there are two Sauls in the Bible. There's a Saul in the Old Testament, and there's a Saul in the New Testament. And isn't it amazing that both of them are from the tribe of Benjamin? And both of them had characteristics of a wolf because both of them hunted down God's little sheep. Yeah, the Saul of the Old Testament was from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And he hunted down little old David, just like a little old wounded sheep. And he hunted him, and he hounded him. And I, brother, I mean he hampered him every step of the way. And then the Saul of the New Testament was no better because he hunted down God's little sheep and tried to kill and molest God's little sheep. But I tell you this, God had a plan for the Saul of the New Testament. I think it all started personally at the 
stoning of Stephen. That's right. I think when Paul was consenting unto the death of Stephen. Stephen was a deacon, you may remember. One of the first Baptist deacons in the Bible. He was a deacon. And the Bible said, oh, Stephen had stood up and preached a message, and they got so mad at him for what he preached. And Saul was consenting. Saul gave his voice the authority to put that Baptist deacon to death. In fact, the Bible said Saul held the clothes while they put him to death. Saul was consenting unto his death. Remember when we was growing up, one of our buddies would get in a fight at school? You know, I was the guy that always held the coat or the glasses. I didn't want to get in a fight, but I didn't mind holding the coat or the glasses. I'd say to them, don't hit me, I'm holding the glasses, man. And that's, you know, Saul didn't, didn't dirty his hands with the death of Stephen, but he was consenting to the death of Stephen. And I'm telling you what he saw and what he heard that day, I think haunted him till the day he died. You remember when old Saul was, uh, uh, when old Stephen was about to die and he looked up and the heavens opened up and he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Oh, there was such a glow on his face, such a look on his face. I don't think Saul ever got over that. And when he heard the words of old Stephen, when Stephen looked up and said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. I think those words haunted old Saul. I think every night when he laid down and tried to go to sleep, he could see the, the glory on the face of that man of God. Those words kept ringing in his soul over and over again. Lord Jesus, Saul had maybe been on the Sanhedrin court and had cast his vote to put that man by the name of Jesus to death on the cross. And now here's old, here's old Stephen talking about seeing him. What in the world is going on? And later on on the Damascus road, the Lord appeared to old Saul and he said to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Saul, you're resisting, you're fighting, but you're fighting a losing battle. And there on the Damascus road, Saul waved the flag, the white flag of surrender and got born into the family of God. Aren't you glad there was a day in your life when you were tired of kicking against the pricks, friend? You went to church and saw the glory on the face of God's people. You heard the words of that man of God and they kept ringing in your soul. And God came to you through the Holy Ghost and said it's hard for you to kick against the prick. And then came the morning, the evening, the afternoon, the revival service when you waved the white flag of surrender and you got saved. Your words to the Lord were these words, Who art thou, Lord, and what wilt thou have me to do? That's how old Saul got in. Well, I'm glad I got in one day. But I'll tell you what, I've got a lot of regrets in my life of things I've done. But I'll tell you one thing, bless your heart, I've never regretted, I've never regretted walking into the family of God. Yes, sir. I'm talking about the old man who is the writer. The old man who's the writer. But then second of all, look in this text. Not only is there the old man who is the writer, but look again at verse number 2. There's the young man who is the reader. Yeah, Paul's writing to somebody. Now, he describes himself as a, an apostle by the will of God. And the word apostle means a sent one, or the word apostle means a missionary on a mission. Paul was on a mission with a message for his master to the multitudes. And can I tell you what we are? We're on a mission with a message from our master to the multitudes. And then he comes in verse number 2 and he says, all right, now I want to tell you, here's who I'm writing to. So now we've got the young man who is the reader. Look again at verse 2. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. So now we know that Paul is the old man, he's the writer. 
And by the way, we know the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. He used human instruments, but He inspired the Word of God. The Bible is the... Hey, I'll tell you something, friend. You're not sitting in the church that's going to raise question marks when it comes to the inspiration, the authority of the Word of God. Hey, this church is a church where we just place an exclamation point. If God said it, that settles it. Amen. The Bible just doesn't contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. Holy men of old spake as they were moved. God gripped their heart. God gripped their head. And God gripped their hand. And God inspired men. God, hey, He used their personalities to write in, but God gave them what to write. Hallelujah. I thank God for the Bible, don't you? But then he's writing now to this young man by the name of Timothy. Now, from every indication, Paul calls him my son. Now, we know, we know, we've read the Bible. We know the Apostle Paul, there's no record of him ever being married. So when he calls Timothy his son, what's he talking about? I mean, did he have a son out of wedlock like a lot of people are doing today? I don't think so. You know, in our day, it used to take nine months for people to get, you know, have babies, but now they get married and have them in three months. Don't take as long to bring them in the world no more, does it? But uh, here, here's, old, here's Paul, and he said, that's my, that's my boy. That's my son. But he isn't talking about physically. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about spiritually. He said, that is my son. We know that Paul led Timothy to the Lord Jesus. He was his son in the faith. Now, I know I, I, can, I can almost see how it come to pass. That's right. You see, back in Acts chapter 16, we, we learn a little bit about Timothy's life before he met the Lord. And, and we come to understand a few things about Timothy's family because we know that Timothy's daddy wasn't a saved man. Back in Acts chapter 16, in verse number 1, the Bible says that Timothy's daddy was, a, was a, 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 let's see, the son of a certain woman who was a Jewish and believed, but his, notice, but his father was a Greek. So we understand that Timothy's daddy was, a, was not, a, not a saved man. But we understand that his mama was a saved lady. Now, I, call, I, I, do, I caution people. Don't be mad at me, but I tell saved people, I caution people that are saved not to marry unsaved people. How many young ladies have saved themselves and they've kept themselves pure and clean and virtuous only to marry some old jackleg that don't have a spiritual desire for the house of God or the things of God to live in regret for the rest of her life. Oh, I want to encourage you, you be careful who you marry. You be careful who you date, friend. Only date people that are possible candidates for marriage. Hey, don't you date. Don't you, you need more than just he's good looking. Because I'm going to tell you something, they ain't going to be long. He's going to get the, the bulges, the bow, bow legs, and the bifocals, and the bunions. And he ain't going to have no hair. He's going to be bald-headed. And those days of glory on that high school football field is going to fade away fast when he weighs about 350 pounds and looks like the Michelin tire man. You need more than just he's good looking. Because looks, looks, looks go away, friend. And by the way, fellas, you need more than she's just a, she's just a, a she looks like Miss America and cooks like Betty Crocker. You need more than somebody like that. Because I'm going to tell you something, she ain't always going to look like that. You heard about that old gal who, who had those, who, a man, he married her, and he said, well, I, I thought her teeth was as bright as the stars of night. And he said, I found out when we got married that they are like the stars of night. He said, they come out every night. She just sets them over on the counter, just right over there, puts them in the glass. 
And let me tell you something about us old boys. He ain't near as good looking when he's setting up the bed biting his toenails off. You're going to need more than just looks. Can I have an amen? You must be sitting in the bed biting your toenails off. You wouldn't be laughing like that. Now what was we talking about? So here it happened. Timothy's mama had married an unsaved man. Didn't have a thing, desire for the things of God. I remember my Uncle Pete, Pete Smoot, my, my Aunt Birdine Smoot. My Aunt Birdine loved the Lord with all of her heart. I mean, she was the treasurer for the old Pine Ridge Baptist Church, and she wouldn't miss a service. I don't care how deep the snow was, how bad the ice was. She was there. But old Pete, I never remember old Pete going to church one time. What he'd do is every Sunday morning, he'd take her in the truck, he'd sit her out, and then he'd go home, and then after church was over, he'd come back and pick her up. And for my whole life, that's all I remember about my Uncle Pete and Aunt Birdine. Can I tell you something? How sad indeed for a young lady to save herself for her whole life and then give herself to some old scoundrel that don't love God. Oh, brother, how sad. And that seems to be what happened in the text. Here's old Timothy's mama, and she gave herself, her name is Eunice, she gave herself to some old Greek man who wasn't even saved. So he's the son of a lost man, but his mama... His mama loves Jesus. His mama loves the Lord. Her name's Eunice, and he has a grandma, and she loves Jesus too. If you'll look in this text, just a little bit later down in this text, the Bible said there in verse number 5, I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which he says this, it first of all dwelt in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. You know what he's saying? I'll tell you what, your mama and your grandma, even though your daddy was lost, didn't care anything about God, you had a mama and a grandma that loved Jesus. And that mama and that grandma set that young man down by the name of Timothy on their knee and taught him the Word of God. You say, Preacher, how do you know all that happened? Turn over to chapter 3, same book, chapter 3, and if you'll look at verse 14. And Paul said this, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned of and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned of. Then notice this, verse 15, And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Spirit. Where in the world? They didn't have Christian schools back in those days. Where did he learn the Holy Scriptures? I tell you, sitting on the, on the laps of his mama Eunice and his grandma Lois. Now, of course, we're Baptists. You can be mad at me if you're not one because you don't have to come back. I get it. But while you're here, I'm going to tell you something. We believe that God calls men to preach around here. Boy, the Southern Baptists are really going through it right now. There's a lady by the name of Beth Moore, and they're preaching her in pulpits all across the Southern Baptist denomination. And they're, them old boys, them old-timers in the Southern Baptists are, are bucking up against that because we believe that God calls the men to do the preaching. Amen. But now let me tell you something. In a real sense, women are preachers. That's right. Women are preachers in this regard. God gives every woman the responsibility of preaching to her own children. Isn't that amazing? God gives a woman the opportunity. He gives her his own, her own congregation. It's called her children. Gives her own pulpit called the kitchen counter and gives her the Bible and says, okay, mama, go at it. Tell them about Jesus. Boy, I want to tell you, uh, you can't beat a mama who will tell her children about Jesus. And this mama and this grandma set that old boy down and day in and day out put the Word of God and Paul said, you know from a child you've known these things. You've known the Holy Scripture. Well, I'll tell you, the greatest thing that any mama, any daddy can ever do for their children is give them the Word of God. Amen. Get the Word of God in their heart. And let me tell you what happened. So Paul goes preaching in the area of God. And I'm done. 
Paul goes preaching in the area of Galatia. And the Bible said he comes over there to the city of Lystra and Derby and Iconium, and Paul preaches. And lo and behold, he gives the invitation, and down the aisle walks a little old fellow. Comes down there and gets saved by the grace of God. His name is Timothy. And boy, I want to tell you something. Them two, they hit it off from the start. In fact, Paul just don't call him, if you look back in verse number 2, he just don't call him his son. You know what he calls him? He calls him my dearly beloved son. Well, there's a verse over in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, says this about the apostle Paul, said when he's talking about Timothy, he said, I have no man like-minded. You know what he's saying about Timothy? I can't think of a better man in the world than that Timothy. Oh, he's a good boy. He's a good. They had a great relationship. Don't you ever discount the salvation experience of a young child. Now, our church, our church sees a lot of children get saved because we run these buses everywhere. But I heard him ask one time, I asked old D.L. Moody one time about the results of the service he was in. And here's what Moody said. He said, well, we had two and a half people saved tonight. They said, two and a half people? You mean two adults and a child? He said, no. He said, I mean two children and an adult. Why? I'll tell you why. When a child gets saved, if they live their life for God, a whole life has been saved. You take us old adults that get saved, been living out in sin for 50 years, got all kind of baggage dragging into the family of God, and I mean the memories that haunt us for the rest of our life and the things we have to deal with, but I'll tell you what, you get a little old young and saved, if he'll live for God, not only has that soul been saved, but the whole life of that child. That's why we ought to get excited about these little children around here and get saved. Hey, it ought not be. Well, we had six saved on the other side of the building. Man, somebody ought to jump up and say, Glory! Six young'uns got saved on the other side. That six young'uns, if they'll live their life for God, their whole lives are going to be saved, not just their soul. We get excited over 75 and 80-year-old people getting saved. By the way, I think we ought to, but I'll tell you what we ought to really excite when these six and seven years old get saved. Amen. Don't ever discount the salvation experience of a child. One of the greatest joys you and I will ever have in this walk of life is leading others to Jesus. And it just seems like that Paul and Timothy just hit it off. You know, some of the best friends I've got in this walk of life is people that I've led to Jesus myself. I just buried one of them not long ago, old David Davis. I led that old boy and his wife to the Lord one night, one Sunday night after church. I went over to their house and led them both to the Lord. Little did I know that night sitting in that little single-wide trailer in Southmont, North Carolina, that God would start a friendship in my life that would last right on up till the time he went to heaven. He used to get on my nerves so bad. I mean, he was always picking about something. I remember I went out. I, somebody down there gave me a little Volkswagen Rabbit. It sounded like a bunch of squirrels running in the engine when you crank that thing up. Most of the time, you can ask my wife, I would have to push it out to the end of the driveway and then start it down the hill and roll it down the hill. It had a, had a five-speed in it, and I'd jump it off by letting the clutch out, pop it up, and then, poof, 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 and then it would it, start on down the road. That low-down David Davis, I come out of the church one night, and I throwed that thing in reverse trying to back up, and it wouldn't go nowhere. And I thought, what in the world? And that idiot had put rocks behind my tires, and that thing wouldn't even back up. But I tell you, we had the best time in the world. He got called to preach. God called him to pastor a church down there, and he just recently died. But I tell you what, he was my son 
in the faith. Even though me and him was about the same age, every Easter Sunday morning, he would call me and say, Preacher, thank you for coming to my house and leading me to Jesus. That old boy would fight for me. In a, in a mortal second, he'd fight for me. That was just a special... You, you don't have any better friends than the friends you lead to Jesus. Oh, brother, they make great... So I'm done. So we got the, the old man, who's the writer, the young man, who's the reader, but then watch this. We have the God-man, who's the center. <laughs> you see, if you'll look three times in verse 1 and verse 2, Paul mentions Jesus three times. In fact, if you'll read this whole book, and I know you have before, if you'll count them, there's 14 times he mentions Jesus in four chapters. You know what this book's all about? It's about Jesus. Hey, can I tell you what the Bible's about? It's about Jesus. <laughs> yes, sir. He's the center and the circumference of the whole world. It's all about Jesus. And then he says this in verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace. That's what we get from Jesus. We get grace, we get mercy, and we get peace. And I love this. Grace. You know, we get our English name Karen from grace. You've heard of Karis, Karen, Maddox, Karis, Maddox. That's grace, grace gifts, charismata, charismatics. The word, we get the name Karen from grace. And then if you look at the word peace, we get the word Irene from, from peace. But can I tell you something? Grace and Irene's got a sister. And her name is Mercy. <laughs> Aren't you glad when you come to Jesus, you get grace? You get caring. You get everything you don't deserve. And when you come to Jesus, you get peace for the disturbances and the storms of life. Thank God for the peace of God. But aren't you glad them two got together and had a sister? And aren't you glad that God gives us what we don't deserve uh, in gray, in, 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 in caring? God gives us peace. But in mercy, God gives us what we God keeps us from getting what we do deserve. And I don't know about you, but the one thing I depend on every day of my life is the mercy of God. I, even more than grace, don't be mad at me, even more than grace, can I tell you when I come down the road praying most times, God, have mercy on me. <laughs> Lord, Lord, don't give me what I deserve. If you gave me what I deserve, I'd be in hell, bro, in hell with my back broke, frying like a piece of bacon. Don't give me what I deserve. I deserve that. But please don't give it to me. And I'm glad that God is a God of mercy. Let's bow our heads for prayer. We've got to go.